Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Okay, so thank you everyone for being here this morning. We are in Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to get more into that here in just a moment. But uh, if you will, please pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and praise you for all these wonderful things you've given us, Father, the blessings you've given us, this world you've given us to watch over and to be a part of. We thank you for this life here, Father, and for the eternal life that you've given us through your Son. We ask, Father, that you would lead and guide us in this study. Help us to learn what you want us to know, Father. Help us to be prepared for the day of the Lord when it comes, Father. Help us to know and understand what we need to know, Father, to be able to overcome and to join you in that eternal life that you've promised us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation chapter 6, we were talking about the four horsemen, the four horsemen, and we're going to read uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, just to refresh our minds of where we were. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown, and was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. <clears throat> now we had answered some questions regarding this down past. We were actually, we had just answered question number six, talking about Death being on the pale horse and Hades following. And so, here at the end of this section about the four riders or the four horsemen, depending on how you look at that, um, I had some other references for us to look at, and we didn't get into this last week. And one reference is in Zechariah, and that's in chapter 1 verses 8 through 10, and this is Zechariah, of course, his vision. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, 
and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. You can read more of his vision in Zechariah. And then also there is another reference to some chariots and horses in Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8. And we believe that these also are related to these four. And this is Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now, based on what we read here of these representations, these spirits, um, the four horsemen or riders or chariots, they represent certain things that we see down throughout history that we as the church have to contend with that are always present. If we look at uh, like the white, the white horse or, or rider, you know, these represent uh, stronger nations vying to conquer other nations, kind of political forces. And sometimes these are forces for good. Sometimes they bring about peace and order for good lengths of time. And uh, you can relate that. Sometimes you can relate that to the U.S. in a present day sense. In the old days, while it may sound weird to say it, Rome could represent such a thing, not because of the way they treated Christians, of course, but because that they did bring a certain order and stability to a large part of the world back then. It's not that they were necessarily wonderful and great, but the fact that they controlled so much and they brought a certain amount of law and order. I'm not saying that they were essentially good. I'm just pointing out that strong nations, strong empires, a lot of times bring about a certain amount of law and order. Then, of course, like the red horse, you know, there's always going to be wars in the world, you know, due largely to the fact that people want what others have or they just have enmity and they, you know, they want to destroy their enemy. So there's that. And then there's always economic up and downs. If you look at famine and the issues there of supply and demand and things being 
available uh, or not available and uh, how that affects prices and how that affects the poor and people just living in the world just trying to be alive. You know, a famine is devastating all the way all the way around in a lot of ways. So, um, and then of course, you know, there's death and Hades and that's always the forces of evil. We always have to contend with that. And the church, the body of Christ has contended with these things all down through the centuries. So to me, when I read all of this, that is what all that represents to me. If I have to sum it up in a nutshell. So, these are things we're still looking at and continuing with today. Does, does anybody have anything else on the four horsemen that they'd like to make comment on or anything? Yes, Matt? Kind of a, a nerdy thing maybe, but the, the fourth horse, uh, most of our translations say it's hail or ashen. Um, the word there is actually green. It's like that word is used for the green grass, other places. And so like the image you have up there, there's a little bit of a green cast to it. I guess yep. I, I kind of think almost like the modern image of zombie movies. The zombies are often with green because they're kind of dead and gross. But I think that's maybe the image we're supposed to have. Yeah, the idea is that it's sickly, it's dead, it's gross, right? It's all that. Yep. Yeah, that horse, that was... And, and it has different descriptions at times, it seems like. But uh, here, it did. It really came across as green. Yeah. Yes? When you read through Leviticus, you get descriptions of wounds that are questionable, that need to be shown to the priest, and they need to be observed and, and rechecked. And a lot of times it will say they're yellow or green well that's right in the old law if they had certain wounds they had to have them checked by the priest and they would look for things like the colorization like if it was turning green which could be gangrene as we all know that's not a good thing or it could be uh, leprosy did what did it turn whitish and scaly so you know, they would look for these color changes. That would be a bad sign of uh, some sort of infection or disease. And they did check the wounds and stuff like that. Anyway, the green color still, again, pointing to sickliness and that kind of thing. Does anybody have anything else on, on that? All right. So we're going to look at next... Revelation chapter 6, we're going to look down at verses 9 through 11. And I want to bring up the appropriate picture for this. That's the uh, artist's rendition of this. So we'll read Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So then we have our questions, and I bet I'm going to have to scroll for a minute. Pardon me. Yep. 
this is a, a bigger book for us, so it takes me a minute to get there, and I thought I had, I had forgotten to get this ready. All right. So we're ready for question seven. What is seen when the fifth seal is opened? Yes. The people who have been murdered for Right. The people who have been murdered or martyred. Basically the same thing, right? For Christ. They had stood for Christ and they were killed for that. Um, let's see. It says that they were killed for the word of God and their testimony, right? Because they stood true and they stood for the Lord. We've seen that in the past and we'll see that in the future. And we, we see it in the present day too. We just don't hear about it as much here in this country, but it does happen in other parts of the world. Let's see. So then what are they saying? What are these folks saying? Yes. They're kind of lamenting, saying, how long until you'll avenge us? We've been killed. When will this be made right? Right. They're, they're really complaining, right? They're saying, you know, how long until we get justice? How long until, let's see, you judge and avenge our blood? You know, how long till you judge the ones who killed us? That's, that's what they're saying. That's what they're crying out. Does anybody have anything on that? Okay. So the next question then is how are they consoled? Or, you know, what is said to them and what is given to them, that type of thing. Yes, go ahead. They're given a white robe and told that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed is completed. Right. They're given a white robe and they're told to rest a little while longer. And it's until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who will be killed is completed. So it's like until the plan, to me in a way that says until the plan is completed here and that the rest of your brethren will be here, you know. Does anybody have anything on that? Yes. Well, it's interesting, like you alluded to, we think about those first century Christians and all the things they went through, but in fact, there are still people today who, dying for Christ, and there likely will be maybe increasing amounts of that to come, and so we're still waiting. <laughs> they're still right, waiting. they're still waiting, to, and, and that would be their state now. They are waiting, I would imagine. I mean, I can't see them having any other option because it's not done here. As near as we can tell, in the spirit realm, maybe time doesn't matter so much, but from, from our point of view, you know, because we're still under the influence of time. Anybody have anything else? All right. Okay, so question number nine. Let's see. Oh, wait. Okay, so we need to move to the next um, image here. Give me a second. Okay, now this is the artist's rendition of the next few verses we're going to read here. Now, this is chapter six again, Revelation chapter six. 
We're reading verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So this is a representation of that. You can see like stars falling, the moon's turned to blood, the sun is black or darkened. You might think of it like an eclipse. I don't know about the rolling up. They're trying to represent this, the sky kind of rolling up, but I'm, I'm not sure how you'd represent that anyway. So anything they did was better than, better than I would have thought of. So question number nine, and this is, this is a very open question. What is seen when the sixth seal is completed? And I guess you can sum that up however you want. But we see a lot of catastrophes, right? <laughs> yes. You just pointed out in that painting that it's an earthquake and the sun became black and the moon was blood, the stars fell from the sky and the sky was rolled up like a stone. Yep. And then. I think it's all representative of. Oh, I guess my watch is. <laughs> the, um, it, it's like representative of, of judgment. That's what a lot of these imagery, you see a lot of this imagery in the Old Testament too, where the, the sun is going to be darkened and all this kind of stuff, and it's usually related to judgment. Right, right. And you do you do hear and see some of that, and I, I got some of that for us. But And it, it does say too that every mountain and island moved out of its place, which I've always found that to be scary at the very least, but it's kind of awesome to think about. That's going to be wild um, if, if, you know. Um, okay, so that would be a lot of destruction, I guess, is what I'm thinking of, you know. Yes? I'm from Alaska, so earthquakes, what they're talking about. Yeah, and it says a great earthquake, right? But I was thinking of it says every mountain and island is going to be moved. Right. Things get shifted, land gets shifted, and moved. But this would be like a worldwide, yeah. the whole yeah. thing, not just a localized area, but the whole thing everywhere. It just sounds like a lot to me. Yes. She's reminding me of the image we would probably remember of Mount St. Helens when it erupted that mountain, and then all of a sudden it's, it's like squished down. It's completely moved from, yeah. from where it started. Yeah, when a volcano erupts, when those things happen, that changes. You know, we're talking drastic changes to the to the planet, to the earth. That's that's what I was thinking of. So, yeah, um, yeah. So, earth. Do, do you have a lot of earthquakes in Alaska? Okay, I wasn't sure. Two moons in 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Those are definitely, yeah, that's big. Okay. I didn't know that. Right, okay. So a lot of tremors that people don't necessarily notice or pay attention to, but, but then you have all those big ones. Okay. Okay, I didn't know that about Alaska. Okay. Um, does anybody have anything else on that question? Okay. So if we look at question 10, what do the people on Earth try to do in the face of this catastrophe, this worldwide thing? They try to hide, right? Yeah. They try to hide. They hide themselves in caves and rocks of the mountains, which... Going along with the earthquake idea, that's kind of crazy. I, I don't know if I would want to hide in a mountain, but, you know, people don't always do the most sensible thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but they knew the, the day of wrath was coming. I mean, this was, they knew, you know, trying to get away from what was coming. Yeah, I mean, let's see. You know, they're saying, you know, fall on us and um, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne for the great day of his wrath has come. Yeah, so they they are trying to hide from God, basically, right? So, I mean, from that day of judgment. You can't do that. Yeah, there's nowhere to hide. Yes. It kind of makes you think about in Noah's time when the great flood came, where would the people go to hide? There was nowhere to escape this water. Right. The flood, there was no, from what I remember, the flood was over 20 feet above the highest mountain peak. So there was nowhere for people to go. There was nowhere for people to go. They could, you know, try to go up the mountains for so long, but the flood covered everything. So, yeah, there was nowhere to escape. And that this is similar like that. Does anybody have anything else? Okay, so um, let's see. I have a couple of references here, and one, well, all of these references are partial in a way for both of these. So, like Zephaniah chapter 1, it's got this whole thing on the day of the Lord. And I picked a few verses here that I think relate to what we're talking about, but you can read the whole thing, of course, for yourself. Um, but Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities, against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver, silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, 
but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So that's one reference to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And then there's another reference that the Lord, Jesus makes in Matthew 24. If we look at just verses 29 through 31, that whole chapter, he's talking about things to the disciples. But here in these verses, again, verses 29 through 31 in Matthew 24, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now that sounds very much like what we just talked about in Revelation, where the moon will be dark, the sun, I mean the sun will be dark, and I see the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. Anyway, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So that, to me, relates to what we were just reading in Revelation. Jesus is telling them that this is going to happen. And then John has this vision, which agrees with what Jesus said is going to happen, which is not surprising, really, but it's, that's the way it is. So part of what Jesus says here, I think, is going to relate to the next chapter we're reading. But we don't have to rush there right at this moment. Is there, does anyone have anything else on this, on chapter 6, before we move forward? Yes. It kind of struck me a little odd in my mind, I guess, when uh, you read about the the slain believers and followers of Jesus that don't seem to be completely at rest or have rest. When you read the imagery from Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus, I mean, the, the poor man well, yeah. in, uh, in paradise or in... Uh, well, Lazarus is the poor man, right? Yeah, I'm getting it. It's okay. I'm just trying to keep it straight in my head. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And um, it so, seems like a little bit of conflict in my mind. Well, why is that a conflict, though? I'm trying to think. They seem to be at rest in the bosom of Abraham. Well, Lazarus was at rest in the bosom of Abraham, right? I mean, that's what the Lord says. So that, that is not, so where, where's the conflict, though, I guess, is what I'm asking. They are not content. They are asking, Lord, how long? Oh, well, it, it doesn't say like they're still feeling persecuted or anything. They just want justice for their death. Do you understand? I mean, I don't see that as a conflict, really. But there... it still seems like discontent in my mind. Well, I mean, I don't know. I've never been killed. So <laughs> to, if I was assaulted and killed, I would probably feel pretty upset about it. And I, I don't know... I don't know if that would change just because I was, <laughs> I've, 
I'm trying to figure that out. I'm not trying. Actually, my mind thinks that once I'm dead and gone, I'm not going to be that overly concerned about things that are going on on the earth. Right. There is that thought. But I, I think just like there are other passages where God says the blood cries out for vengeance and for justice. I think... I think this is alluding partly to that, though it does mention that they are there and that they are asking for that justice. But I, I wonder if it's not related back to that kind of moral thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say that I'm kind of along with what Kim's the questions Kim has, or some questions I have too, to add to it a little bit. A lot of the the imagery we have of, of dying is using the word asleep. You know, we sleep. And that kind of fits with the idea that we're, you know, we're waiting for the resurrection, we're sleeping. But then there are those other passages like Rich Man Lazarus that kind of give us this idea, well, is he asleep or is he talking to Abraham? You know, it's kind of different, but it almost seems like, it's almost like what you were alluding to earlier, that here on earth we're constrained by time. And so we look at those things differently, but in the spiritual realm, it's just probably all wink of an eye and... Yeah, in the spiritual realm, yeah, we really don't know how that time passes and everything. And and is being at peace in the bosom of Abraham, is that the same as what Paul refers to as being asleep in the Lord? I'm not sure. It sounds similar to me, but I can't say that that's 100% the and same. I, I understand there's some awareness that we still have, even though we passed. It's not that we have no awareness whatsoever. Because clearly in Luke 16, there's awareness. Here in Revelation, there's awareness of those who are gone. Right. There's aware. There's awareness of the of those people. Yes, they are aware of what has happened to them. But in yes. Luke 16, they're aware. He says then. Yeah. Someone. Oh, right. You're talking about okay. The rich man. Yes, he is aware. He is in torment, and, and he is aware. Jealous that. Yeah, and he, well, yeah. There's that's a that's a whole story. That's a whole lesson in and of itself, as far as how he reacts and treats Lazarus and all that. Because that's he still looks at Lazarus as Lazarus should be my servant, you know. Right. And there's just a lot to that. Right, right, right. And I'm yeah, I imagine that's pretty accurate as far as our our spiritual character is going to be the same, right? So. Does anybody have anything else? Are we okay on that? Well, what one word maybe to join all that together is maybe the idea of being at rest. As opposed to the, the struggles in life, um, we're asleep in Jesus, we're at rest, we're under the altar, we're no longer being persecuted. We were asking how long, but we're at rest, we're no longer being persecuted. If we're being comforted in the bosom of Abraham, we're at rest. So, <laughs> they are all kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, they are. Um, I was trying to see if there's anything regarding like a passage of time or anything, but there's not. This is just really part of the vision. So we really don't have a good feel for, for that. Uh, just that they are under the altar, at least at that part of the vision. So, when I read all of this catastrophic stuff, this is where I have trouble when 
Some people will say that all this happened, it's all in the first century, it's all done and over with. But when I read all of this, we don't have any historical reference to that kind of destruction and stars falling from the skies and all that sort of thing. Yeah, we have individual things like you can have an eclipse, you can have a blood moon, you can have, but not like this is talked about. And that's what makes me think and believe that this isn't all just done and over with. But that's, you know, that's one one way of looking at things. Um, but I just wanted to mention that before we get into the next chapter. So, yes, Matt? But if you take that imagery as being symbolic generally of judgment rather than literal stars falling and stuff, like other other Old Testament places where this is used and it's like Babylon is falling or whatever, um, you, know, you could take this as talking about the fall of Rome in, in regard to persecuting Christians, but certainly there's more. There's more to be fulfilled. We're looking forward to Christ's return and all of that. Right, and the problem with it being purely symbolic is that when the Lord said he was sending a flood, did he not actually send a flood? So that's my problem, too, is that the flood was not symbolic. It happened. He promised it. Noah talked about it. Couldn't save anybody for 100 years, right? But it still happened. So I'm afraid to take some of these things as purely symbolic because he's telling us this is going to happen. So for me to just say that's totally symbolic and it's representative of something that's already happened, I, I can't do that. So, I mean, I understand the idea and that is what people believe. They believe it's totally symbolic and it's already happened. But anyway, that's just two different points of view. So. And there are others, there's others that do a mishmash of things. But uh, for me, because he's saying this is going to happen, I believe it's really going to happen. So, yes. Well, and this is supposed to be the final judgment, right? This is supposed to represent the final judgment, not because um, if the final judgment had happened, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, we wouldn't be here, right? So. There's just certain logical things about that. But, but I wouldn't totally discount it because there are definitely some symbolic and imagery references in the whole book. So we have to look at it and think about it. All right, so if we look at Revelation chapter 7, unless, did anybody have anything else on chapter 6? Okay, if we look at Revelation chapter 7, there is an event here that happens before the last seal is opened and before the trumpets that start occurring in the next chapters. Now, we're going to look at these two things. We're splitting the chapter up into two parts. The, the first part will be uh, verses 1 through 8, and that's about the 144,000. And then the second part will be verses 9 through 17, and that is about the great multitude in heaven that John sees. So that's really the answer to our first question as far as what are the main points of this chapter. It's really like these are the things the chapter is about. So let's read Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. 
I'm running out of time, ain't I? Tell you what, let's read this, um, and then we'll we'll stop. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. When I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out, uh, I'm sorry, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So I guess due to time, we will, we will stop there. We'll come back and pick up with chapter 7 next week. So thank you for your time and for your attention.